First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Let's read it together. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers and sisters. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but repay with blessing because you were called to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. Really challenging stuff right there. Even non-Christians can choose not to retaliate. Ordinary, normal people can grit their teeth and suppress their emotions and just not fight back. But notice what he's actually saying. He's saying, you're to bless. I mean, what does it mean to bless? But to ask God to rain down his favor upon this person that is, so, is treating us so maliciously and terribly, or to speak a, a kind word of God's favor to that person. Hard stuff, but he backs it up with Psalm 34 and verse 10. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? We say, lots of people. <laughs> but even if, you, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer, and the Greek word here is literally apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. Have you ever heard of apologetics? An apologia was oftentimes used to describe the, the defense that one would deliver in a, in a case, in a courtroom trial. Here it's translated more broadly, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And in verse 18, it's a great verse of the gospel. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. When we normally talk about so-called apologetics, we think of it in terms of what the professionals do. Apologetics is the type of stuff that Ravi Zacharias does when he goes onto a college campus and answers the difficult questions of students who speak in the microphone after his talks. Apologetics are the hard things that J.P. Moreland does when he debates prominent atheists like Richard Dawkins. But you notice what Peter has in mind. It's something entirely different here when he uses this word apologia. He says the real apologia begins when you live a provocative life, when you refuse to repay insult with insult, but when you're insulted or shamed, you repay that with a blessing. The apologia, apologetics, the entire apologetic enterprise begins when you provoke curiosity in the lives of um, 
the non-Christians who are around you. It would be interesting if one of uh, our presidential candidates during a presidential debate, when they are insulted by one of their opponents, took the high road. (laughs) Has that happened yet in the entire debate cycle? Back in their day, you would have two competing philosophical schools, and the idea was they would trade barbs. They would insult one another back and forth because in insulting one one another, you would shame your opponent. And in their world, it's all about shame and honor. You would make yourself look strong and they would look weak. But Peter's saying, bless them in return in order that you would provoke them to ask the question, what's different about me? It's a shame that in America, religion is so privatized, isn't it? I mean, you cannot have a conversation about religion around the water cooler at the office. You can talk sports all day long or hobbies, uh, but how many times, just for curiosity's sake, how many times has anybody ever said to you, oh, I see the different way that you live. There's such a unique quality to your life. Um, why? What, what is it that you believe? Tell me what you... How many times has that happened? Uh, a few, a few, but it's awfully rare. That, that's what Peter's talking about. He's, he's talking about giving an apologetic to somebody who actually wants to listen to you. You know, there's a world of difference of talking about your faith with people who are genuinely interested versus someone who's just listening to you out of politeness versus someone who's not listening to you at all. But he says, be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way that you are and do it out debate and crush the opponent, but do it with the utmost courtesy. Another way that it's translated in a modern translation is tell anyone who is curious and do it with courtesy. Where I wanted to begin with the sermon, we'll move through a couple of different sections pretty quickly, but I wanted to start by considering the fears that we have which keep us from opening our mouths and and doing apologetics in the first place. So here's three fears. Fear number one. Somebody will ask me a question about Christianity or raise a legitimate barrier to belief, and I won't have a compelling answer for them. Maybe not only that I won't be able to help them, but I'll look foolish myself and look like I've staked my life on something that I haven't even thought through. (laughs) Yeah, fear number one is I'm afraid I I won't know what to say. And my response to that is you don't have to be very good at what you say. Give them a book. (laughs) Today we have such a wealth of incredible material out there. Give them a book. Give them Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Give them The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. My favorite is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. If you're, you're afraid you don't know what to say, but put it in their hands somebody who knows what to say. Or say to them, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll get back with you. That type of answer, the refreshingly honest, I don't know what but I'll look into it type of answer, is one that people genuinely respect. Fear number two, I'm afraid that I will feel like a fraud telling someone how great Jesus is when I don't truly believe myself 
how great Jesus is. My life is not a very good advertisement for the power of Jesus to change a life. And I'm afraid that I would feel like a hypocrite. That's a refreshingly honest perspective. I wonder if if it describes you and if you would be willing to offer that and and admit to that. Um, Again, you don't have to out-debate somebody. You, You don't have to... Be a genius. Um, I think in Ravi Zacharias's story, correct me if I'm wrong, those of you who know it better than I do, but he was a 17-year-old boy that grew up in a in, uh, diplomatic family in India, quite rich, quite educated, and entirely without reason, desire to live. So he drank poison at the age of 17. One of the servants found him on the ground. They took him to the hospital. There he is dying in the hospital, uh, a, a Hindu whose life is at this point meaningless. And some Christian man walks into his uh, hospital room. It might have been a hospital chaplain. I, I can't recall. But he just hands him a New Testament and says, can I pray for you? Now, did that man, was, was he on fire for Jesus? Not necessarily. Was, he, was his life, uh, were the relation, was the relational connection between him and Jesus of such a quality that he was a walking advertisement for the goodness of the gospel? Uh, maybe, not necessarily. But he hands him a Bible, and <laughs> next thing you know, Ravi Zacharias is converted. Finally, fear number three is I don't want to be labeled as one of those judgmental, conservative, homophobic, narrow-minded people in the office, or you just could pick whatever pejorative title that you want. And, and who is, of all people, to lecture us about being bold and opening our mouths? Peter is the guy who does so. Pete, courageous Peter, who on the night that Jesus uh, died outside of the, uh, the courtyard of the high priest, was afraid to even speak a word to this servant girl who said, I think you're one of his disciples. It's frightening to speak up. Peter understands that. Of all the people in the Bible, Peter understands. But verse 15 is really the key here. If you see it, verse 15, um, verse, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Another way of saying it is, is fear Jesus, not men. Who do I really fear? Whose opinion really matters to me the most? Whose approval am I really seeking? Uh, I realize it can be entirely frightening to open your mouth and try to persuade somebody else about the reliability or the, the claims of Jesus Christ. But Don't be ashamed of your Lord if he's your Lord. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Sometimes you just have to be a fool for the sake of Jesus Christ. Do you have the courage to do that? Moving on, let's talk about a few slick apologetic arguments that are out there. You might have heard the parable of the elephant before. It's usually used in situations where people are trying to prove that how arrogant it is that you could claim that your religion is the the only true religion out there. Um, 
You know, there's, there's got to be multiple pathways to God. And, and all religious pathways, so long as they are sincerely followed, are equally valid attempts at uh, finding ultimate reality. So in the parable of the elephant, you know, you've got three blind scribes. And one of them is holding on to the tail of the elephant. And you ask him, well, what is ultimate reality like? And he says, it's like a rope. And you have the second blind scribe. He says, no, it's, ultimate reality isn't like a rope. Well, this guy is holding on to the leg of the elephant, and he says, no, no, it's like a tree. Final scribe says, you're both wrong. No, 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 no. Uh, He's holding on to the trunk of the elephant and says, ultimate reality is like a snake or like a hose. They each touch a different part of ultimate reality, and therefore it's arrogant for, for any one religion to say that they have the whole truth. You heard the parable of the elephant before? Now, what's the problem with that argument? The problem is you're claiming it it only makes sense if you can see the entire picture. If Jesus or Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad, they're blind scribes, they're only looking at one part. But see, the, the minute somebody says, I see the entire elephant, I know you're claiming the very knowledge that you say no one else has. You know, you, so that's one of the arguments. You know, another one is you can have a quick response, a good response to the claim that science has disproven the existence of God or the problem of evil. There's too much pain and suffering in the world for an all-powerful, all-benevolent God to exist. If you go through apologetics classes, I mean, you end up learning the answers to, to each of these they're slick, they're good, they're useful in certain situations. But they rarely, I find they rarely do the trick. I mean, leave it to the great apologist himself. Again, Ravi Zacharias. I'm, I'm on a Ravi kick recently because I saw him at the prayer breakfast a few weeks ago. But he says, quote, very rarely, very rarely do you ever argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven. As good as argument is, it has to stop at a certain point and allow the Holy Spirit to do his work and your life be the witness to his work. I've seen so many people who come to Christ two years later say that some of the arguments were very important, but it is very seldom that a person says, because of the argument, I became a Christian. That very seldom happens. Argument is good. I wish I could do his accent. Argument is good. But, but he says the most powerful apologia, the most powerful apologetic he knows is, get this, a worshiping community. A worshiping community which embodies th- these things that are spoken about in verse 8. Oh, this is, the, this is the apologetic. When you get a group of Christians together who live in harmony with one another, wow, that would be amazing. <laughs> who are sympathetic with one another, who love each other as brothers and sisters, who are compassionate and humble with one another and who treat their enemies with the same kind of enemy love that Jesus Christ himself demonstrated, who hanging on the cross said, Father, forgive them. Um, that's where it all begins. Let me give you now several good rules of thumb that I've come up to help guide us in the apologetic process. 
three of these, three good rules of thumb. So I had three fears now, three rules. Number one, and and these are a little trite, but they're 100% true. Number one is, before you talk to somebody about God, you need to talk to God about that somebody. (laughs) Before you talk to somebody about God, you have to You'd be wise to repeatedly pray for that person. I mean, one, obviously, because that's the power of God unto salvation. That's what God uses to draw people to himself. Spiritual uh, spiritual tools within our toolbox. But number two, it's very... Have you ever noticed this? The more you actually pray for somebody, the more your heart is drawn toward them. The more you fall in love with, when you start praying hard for a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, isn't it true your heart just starts to expand for them? So you, they're going to be drawn to God and you are going to be drawn to them. And it's a great symbiotic activity going on there. So rule number one. Rule number two, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. All right, totally sounds trite. Put it on a bumper sticker. But it's 100% accurate. People do not care how much you know. They don't care if you can play around with the teleological argument for the existence of God and the ontological argument for the existence of God. They don't care that kind of stuff until you bring them lasagna when their child's sick and they're you know, in the hospital. It's number three, a handout. <laughs> so I put in the narthex on the table 26 ways to live provocatively at work. This was written up by J.D. Greer, a pastor at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. 26 ways. I'm certain that if you start reading through these, you're going to find a number of these that you don't like. And you think, I, I, would never, I would never in my life think of organizing an exercise group before after work is... <laughs> Number five here. But some of these are spot on. Uh, You can take it home with you if you wish. Like, number one, and the most important, get to work early so that you can spend some time praying for your coworkers and praying for your heart uh, the the, the day ahead. That takes a tremendous amount of self-discipline to get to work early to pray for your coworkers. (laughs) Who of us do that? Or number two, Make it a daily priority to speak and write words of encouragement when somebody does good work. Maybe you already do that. Maybe you're good at that. Some of us are not as much so. Number three, instead of eating lunch alone, intentionally eat with coworkers and, and learn their story. Number four, bring breakfast once a month for everyone in your department. Mm, that might be expensive depending on how large your department is. Number 12, going down the list, make every effort to avoid gossip in the office. Be a voice of thanksgiving, not complaining. I mean, that goes a very long way. A few more of these. Number 15, make every effort to know not only the names of your coworkers or clients, but also the names of their family members. Put them in your prayer list and pray by name for, uh, not only for them, but for their wives and kids or husbands and kids. Number 20, keep copies of the reason for God, the case for Christ, a Bible or New Testament, 
Give a copy to anyone who asks about it, seeing, it, seeing these sitting on your shelf. Or number 23, go out of your way to talk to the janitors, to the cleaning people, to all the people that go overlooked. Did you see the article? Oh, was it the CEO of Charles Schwab? He said his way of interviewing... Anybody read this one? So I, the other week. His, so if he's interviewing somebody for an executive position in Charles Schwab, he does two things. He takes them to a restaurant. He arrives at the restaurant before, actually before the uh, interviewee arrives there, and he goes in and he, uh, he goes into the kitchen and he pays off the cook or the waiter to screw up the order entirely so that whatever it is that's brought out to, he, he wants to see how they deal with that adversity. And number two, uh, he asked this question because this was the final question he had in a class, in an MBA class he had years ago. It was the, fi- it was the, the final for the test. And he asked the same question. The, it, was a, it was the question, what's the name of the janitor in the school that we, in the, the, the Department of Business? What's the name of the janitor? That was the final exam. He asked the same question. What's the name of the janitor in the place that you work? Finally, I know that we, you've probably seen the magic duo Penn and Teller before. They're funny. They're really good at what they do. Penn Gillette is the big guy in the duo and with the long hair. He happens to be an avowed atheist, has really no regard whatsoever for religion or Christianity. I saw him post a YouTube video this week. He posted it after an encounter with a polite man who had the courage to share his faith with him. It was kind of a, um, a rant of sorts, but here's what he said in the YouTube videos. I... I've always said this. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect them. I don't respect them at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward for you and and I know atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. But really... How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize to them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that there is everlasting life, everlasting life is possible, and yet not tell them about it? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe that a truck was bearing down on you, was going to smack you into the pavement, there's a certain point that I would tackle you. And this is way more important than that. That's an atheist speaking. Now, would I use it, phrase things, uh, the same, use the same kind of language that he does here and phrase it the way that he does here? Uh, absolutely not. But his point, this is an atheist, and he's saying that effectively apologetics and evangelism are acts of love. If the gospel is true, then the only thing that, they, that can ultimately keep you from opening your lips is a lack of love. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is, is the Lord of this place and that human beings were meant to know him, and if you truly believe, oh, 18, verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God, only a lack of love is, would keep you from opening your, your mouth. Um, 
C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about clues to the meaning of the universe and the apologetic enterprise as sort of taking people through the clues to the meaning of the universe. I love that word clues because if you have a single clue, a single clue doesn't do you any good. What you need are a collection of clues. A clue is something that might suggest but doesn't prove. You need a cluster of clues to build up the cumulative significance and to disclose the true meaning of the universe. So, well, here's, a, here's some, a cluster of clues. You, you live in harmony with one another. You, 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 you're not afraid when you're given the opportunity to speak about your hope. You invite people to church. <laughs> Do you feel comfortable doing that? I've always wanted All Saints to be a place where you knew that you could invite non-Christian friends, family, co-workers, and they would come and they would hear a winsome, truthful expression of the gospel. I I hope that's true. I mean, we try to make it that way. Every Sunday, I'm not only trying to edify, build you up as a believer, but at least say something that might capture the attention or make a non-Christian think. I, I want All Saints to be a place where you feel comfortable inviting people, especially on Easter. We're two weeks away, and I think that the greatest apologetic in the world is the fact that we live in a place where resurrection has happened. Never forget, we live in a world where resurrection has already happened. If Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, uh, they can't take that away from us. It's the most persuasive, most wonderful, most compelling reason in the, in the universe to be a Christian and, and I just hope that you'll invite some people here on Easter Sunday to hear the gospel winsomely and meet a community of believers, which makes them ask the question, why?